Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental, our first Dan Free episode. Is that right, Evan? That is true. We are without the captain today. I'm Taryn Sharma. I'm sure a lot of you know me. I've been on before, and Evan Mattel is going to co-host with me today. Uh, we've got some interesting topics. We're going to be talking about the Jaron Jackson Jr. official scoring issues that, that were brought to light by a very investigative Redditor this week. We've got uh, we've got the NCAA beefing up on NIL and lowering their their standards, and we're going to discuss that. Talk a little bit about Stetson Bennett, his altercation with the law, and how that might affect his NFL prospects. And we'll talk a little bit about Sinclair and Bally Sports, their filing for bankruptcy and its effect on individual teams through the regional sports networks. And we'll finally close with an interview that Evan did with Mike Scott, who is a assistant general counsel with the Nationals, right, Evan? Yep. Yeah, me and him uh, sat down for about 20 minutes doing a little bit of a like career-type interview, give some advice to the listeners, and give some insight into someone who's into the field of sports law. And he's got a nice story, so uh, definitely worth the listen. Like always, we're trying to make sure that this podcast, this entire endeavor that we're working on is helpful to you, the listeners, in terms of getting more involved in sports and staying up to date. And so we're really uh, excited that we've been able to feature more of these career elements than uh, in the past. As always, our podcast is sponsored by Themis. Evan, do you think you're going to use Themis? Yeah, I mean, I'm a 2L. You know, I know you at the bar, and I'm, I'm sure I know what, what product you're using, but I am ready to get my Themis subscription going and start studying for the bar in the next year. As always, themis.com slash con detrimental is the link. You can go there, sign up through our link, and they'll give you extra goodies and maybe some money off. I think they've been a great sponsor of ours for a few years now. I can attest Themis was a, a great experience in studying for the bar. And so we love Themis, best bar prep company in the universe. So Evan, when I saw this Jaron Jackson Jr. story about the the made up blocks, uh, the allegations of it anyway, the first person that I thought of that I needed to hear from is the guy that's always talking about Memphis, 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 Memphis on my timeline, Francis Carlotta. So we've got him with us here today. Francis, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, why Memphis is so important to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, Taryn, Evan, it's great to be here. First of all, thank you for having me on. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure to be on such a phenomenal podcast that y'all have been putting out for a very long time. So first off, before I get into everything, thank you. It's about Memphis. So I'm, I'm born and raised from Memphis, Tennessee. I, I've been a basketball fan really since I could remember. I'm also Filipino. So what I tell people is you can't be Filipino and from Memphis and not love the game of basketball because basketball is in Memphian's blood. It, it's it's everywhere. There's a basketball culture that really transcends the whole city and not just in the NBA because the Memphis Grizzlies didn't come to Memphis until the early 2000s, but also with their college team to the Memphis Tigers. My love for the Memphis Tigers is what sparked my love of basketball. It's helped my love of Memphis as a city, as a whole, I love the people. And I, I hope that when people first meet me, the first thing they realize is where I'm from. And that's Memphis, Tennessee. And that's uh, and obviously it's translated to you since I came to mind when all the Memphis Grizzlies stuff popped up. So it means a lot to me because I'm very proud of where I'm from. 
and part of my city. I'm touched by your story, your background, given that, you know, it's something that you've gotten closer with your own family because of your love for the Tigers. You also write about the Grizzlies, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. I'm a writer for Grizzly Bear Blues, the SB Nation blog site. I also write for the Memphis Tigers at Bluff City Media. So I cover both pro and college. It's an absolute pleasure. So needless to say, you're well-versed on the the Memphis background, uh, Memphis basketball, especially. Here's the allegation. And this was on Reddit by AdMassive6666. And they've got the numbers after it, Evan. So you know you can trust them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and multiple numbers after the name. The more numbers, the more trustworthy the source. So here's what it is. At home, Jaron Jackson Jr., who is a defensive player of the year candidate, one of the best young players in the NBA, has 22 steals and 66 blocks. On the road, he has 12 steals and 37 blocks. He's seeing an 89% increase in blocks and 120% increase in steals at home, despite playing more road games than home games this season. He's got 88 blocks and steals in 16 home games and 45 combined in 17 away games. Eight out of nine of his six-plus steals and blocks games were recorded in Memphis. On average, that's five and a half steals and blocks per home game compared to a still impressive 2.81 on the road. That's a 96% boost in performance based on location alone. This disparity demands closer inspection and raises legitimate questions as to what could be happening here. The speculation here is that the official scorekeeper for the Memphis Grizzlies has a financial incentive for uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. to win Defensive Player of the Year. In the last couple of days since we initially talked about this, Francis, I, I know that it's been debunked a little bit, but just give us your take on on why you think the the statistical anomaly exists and and whether you think that these numbers are legit. Yeah, to answer the first question, because I, I think I can compose myself a little bit better by addressing the first one. It's, it's no secret that Memphis really does struggle on the road. They just came off a five-game losing streak where they were on a West Coast road trip. I actually got to watch them lose at the last second to the LA Lakers in the Crypto.com arena. That sucked. But it's well-documented that they just struggle on the road. They're 21-3 and at home. They're 11-15 on the road. So for me, in terms of the statistical anomaly between the home and away splits, it's as simple as the Grizzlies, for whatever reason, struggle on the road now is it all the travel is it the jet lag because they're in the western conference but they play in memphis which is in central time who knows Wh whatever the case may be they do struggle on the road and every single member of the starting five besides dylan brooks because i guess dylan brooks has to be the outlier in just about everything he does he's the only grizzlies and grizzly player in the starting five whose stats do not get worse on the road so I don't think it's a Jaron Jackson Jr. thing. I, I think it's a t statistical thing. I think it's more of a Jaron Jackson Jr. play thing. As someone who watches a lot of Grizzlies games, I just yelled at the TV at Coach Jenkins to get Jaron Jackson more involved on the offensive end. And for whatever reason, he doesn't. And that hurts his stats. And then on defensive end, he tends to have a higher foul rate on, on away games as well, which costs him time on the, on, the, on the floor. So to me, it's not a statistical thing. It's just more so... The team just struggles on the road for whatever reason it may be. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm kind of with you there. I, I think it's just more of a, a home away thing. I think maybe not an individual player, but you can see that uh, very obvious test case with the Golden State Warriors. 
They are a phenomenal home team and just are a very subpar team on the road. I think there's just something to be said about being at home. Like you said, I think uh, jet lag and, and being properly you know, rested and, and proper pregame is important. I, I think people just maybe read into stuff like that. I think having different home and away splits to such an extent is probably more commonplace than people think. I think someone just did a deep dive, had some extra time on their hands and, and trying to disparage the Grizzlies who maybe are starting to get some heat for the T. Moran thing. Dylan Brooks is a little controversial, we'll call it, the whole Shannon Sharp thing. So they've been in the headlines. So I think people may be just trying to deep dive and trying to get a piece of that, you know, that news pie. Francis, was that the game that you were at, the Shannon Sharp game? I was. Yeah, I was at the awesome. Shannon Sharp game. What yeah. Was that? It was it was a, a ruckus to say the least. Me and me and my my wife were sitting a little just left of the Grizzlies bench and we were lucky enough to have really good seats. And it was just right before halftime started. And I just looked at my wife and then she's like, oh, look, at there's just, there's like a fight going on, like a fight. What are you talking about? And I just look over and it's just a horde of both teams in just the left corner of the court. And I, I had to go on Twitter because, you know, at the game, you don't hear the announcers and all that stuff. So I immediately checked her Twitter. She text, checks Twitter and I'm seeing all these things happening. Like, wow, we had no idea. We, we, we saw Shane was at the game, but we didn't know the, the depth of it until we checked Twitter. But yeah, it was a lot. And you know, seeing the commotion online was also definitely interesting. For you to to go see them on the West Coast, but for all of the games, for it to be that one is uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just to put a bow on that one, Kirk Goldsbury, who's one of the most respected basketball analysts, he watched all of the Grizzlies home games, rewatched all of the 66 blocks that Jaron Jackson Jr. was credited with. And his findings were that Jackson might be the top rim protector on earth, which is very high. Of the 66 blocks, at least 60 are clearly blocked by Jackson. Three to five are questionable and two are are wrong. And so then he showed those two. And I trust Kirk Goldsberry. I trust you. I think we can settle that a Redditor, like you said, Evan, had a little bit too much time on their hands. But- Speaking of the Lakers and officiating, the other night in a nationally televised game against the the Celtics, one of the Lakers' big rivals, LeBron was fouled after traveling, and yet he didn't score at the end of regulation. The Lakers end up losing in overtime. So then today, or yesterday, this week, the NBA referees put out a tweet, which might be one of the most pathetic things that I've ever read. Like everyone else, referees make mistakes. We made one at the end of last night's game, and that is gut-wrenching for us. The play will weigh heavily and cause sleepless nights as we strive to be the best referees that we can be. Excuse me while I cry for the Scott Fosters and the Tim Donahues of the world, but uh, it does bring up a larger question. Francis, before they showed Lakers-Celtics, they were talking about what the biggest prop bets were that were going to hit. This is on ABC. It's an ES, it's a uh, NBA partner, and they're talking about that. Do you think that the league owes some responsibility to people who are taking that gambling advice, even if they say it's not advice, and, and betting on the games? In terms of owing them a responsibility, I, I mean, in terms of what the NBA actually 
does to promote gambling, as, as we've mentioned before, it's it's like a multi-million dollar industry, sports betting. And the NBA has profited heavily from sports betting on NBA games, prop betting, et cetera. Their argument would be, well, you don't have to bet. You know, it, you're free to not bet on these games. So why would we owe you anything? But at the same time, for people who do bet, obviously, I could definitely argue that there is some form of responsibility owed to them, especially in terms of getting the right calls. Something that I've been thinking about recently is how a VAR type system in soccer would work in the NBA. Now, for me, I don't think that would work because soccer is a much slower paced sport. And I love soccer. This is not me talking down on the sport. I love soccer. It's a much slower paced sport where you can, the, the VR referee can stop play and say, oh, wait, let's go review that. And it doesn't really disrupt the flow of the game. In the NBA, that's not going to happen because if a VAR ref had the ability to say, oh, let's stop play, let's review this, or let's review that, that could happen on multiple possessions in a row and really disrupt the whole flow. So that to me is not the answer. But I do think the NBA does owe a responsibility to not to, to get sports betters, but to the fans and to the teams and organizations that put so much into the sport to get calls right. And, I, and for me, I have a big problem with not being able to challenge a no call. I think just giving a coach just one or maybe, heck, maybe two challenges on no calls because there's there's cameras everywhere. They have their iPads on the sideline that basically have the whole game on there. So they can look at something and be like, no, we should challenge that. But if it's not call on the floor, you can't challenge that. And that to me is a bit unfair because it's one-sided. You're putting so much faith in the referees that we know missed calls. So I think the ability just to give coaches a challenge of a no call would be beneficial and help alleviate those problems and also help solve those responsibility issues that the NBA has been failing to provide to people who do bet on sports. Yeah. And and just to piggyback off that, I'm going to give a, what I think is a, a fair solution in terms of being reasonable and being realistic. But I, I will say the the L2M reports, those those postgame reports that referees put out saying, well, we missed this and well, we got this right for this reason. I, I don't know about you guys. That stuff infuriates me because all it does yeah. is validate, you know, anger. The one with R.J. Barrett, I'm a Knicks fan. So, you know, this hits home for me. The one with R.J. Barrett where they said, he got hit, but it didn't affect the rhythm of his shot. I mean, to me, that's a, a crazy excuse to give. If he got hit, it's a foul. But on the more, you know, let's try to fix this problem. I think that the retroactive review of two and three pointers where they just let the game go on, they add the point as the flow of play continues. If it was a misdeemed two-pointer when it should have been a three-pointer, I think that's a step in the right direction. I think two really easy fixes. One, if you win a coach's challenge, you get another one. I can't believe that mm. that's not a rule already. And two, yeah. the NFL has it. Any play inside two minutes, any touchdown automatically reviewed. I think you can put that in the NBA, whether it's the last minute, the last 30 seconds, you can use the clutch definition and you should just be able to stop games, whatever, five point difference, three point difference within two minutes, however they want to define it. If there's a ticky tack play, you can either throw a challenge or it's automatically reviewed by the refs. I do think Sometimes fans blow referee impact out of proportion. I think it's especially magnified when you have a game like Lakers Celtics ending the way that it did. But I do think, especially if you watch the Chiefs Bengals game, that there is now a lot of heavy pressure on referees. I think something is going to get done about it. 
And I do think trying to find that middle ground between being reasonable towards, you know, the human element of a referee and the pace of play, and then also trying to get the best result out of a game. Yeah, and and as far as duty to gambling goes, our, our guy, uh, Michael McCann at McCann Sports Law was all over that this morning. He said, public service announcement after a weekend of bad officiating. Yes, you can sue as a fan or as a better. No, your lawsuit will go nowhere. You need to be owed a legal duty by the party responsible for the harm to get anywhere in court. You have no right to good calls. Sorry. <laughs> Which is sad, but is true. And he also brings up in, in a subsequent tweet that those daily fantasy sports bettors sued over the sign-stealing scandal with the Astros, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and that case was dismissed. The truth is, as McCann says, yeah, there's no duty. But I think that you are both correct in that we need to demand more from the leagues because they are really embracing gambling at a level that they never have after really shutting the door to it for so long. So if you're going to bring these things into the light, there should be additional responsibilities that you take in earning this additional money. Yeah, I, I really could not agree more. It's, it's it's the idea that these sports leagues have realized, oh, wait, we can profit from this too? Oh, then great. Then that's all we really care about. And as we know, money makes this world go around. And we for sure know money makes sports go, go around as well. So once they realize that gambling does this to their their bottom line, it changed a lot of things in sports for, for some better, but also definitely for some worse. Yeah. And I mean, as a, as a better myself, it is legal in New York. I will say there's nothing worse than losing on a referee's call. You can always blame a player, but, you know, blaming a ref, that one always hits a bit more home because you feel like you really got, you know, hit a little bit harder than you would on a normal loss. So, yeah, I think it's a funny thing that it took like gambling to really highlight this issue. But, you know, whatever way it gets fixed is is good with me. Great conversation, guys. Really enjoyed it. Francis, thanks so much for coming on. Do you have anything that you want to plug? Yeah, like I said before, I, I write for Grizzly Bear Blues, grizzlybearblues.com. We cover the Memphis Grizzlies at a very high level. I love being a part of that website. And I write for the Memphis Tigers and cover their men's basketball team for bluffcitymedia.co and NIL-driven website. So all the funds that are given to the site go to the players. So that I think is that, to me, is fantastic. So go, you can find me there at really, anytime there's a Grizzlies game or a Tigers game, most likely really a Tigers game, it's, it's, I, I got y'all. So you can find me there and find me on Twitter at Slugga Sports, S-L-U-G-G-A Sports. Go give our guy Francis a follow. Thanks again, Francis. Yeah, absolutely. Thank y'all. All of that sports gambling talk was brought to you by another one of our great sponsors, Better Edge, our Promo code CONDUCT will give you a $20 match. Our guy Conlon, if you follow him, he correctly picked the Chiefs plus two and a half. I correctly had Chiefs money line, which was somehow like they were not the favorite at home. I wasn't pleased to see all of the calls, but I was happy that my bet hit. Go ahead and go to Better Edge and use our promo code CONDUCT to start betting today. A big piece of news this week that just dropped today, Evan, the doors are opening for the NCAA to close in on NIL violations. Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated had a great article today. I'm sure that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably followed the Jaden Rashada situation where he was agreeing to a $13 million endorsement deal with the Gator Collective that was later pulled 
probably because Jaden Rashada is a four-star recruit wasn't worth $13 million. And on three, which is one of the recruiting sites said as much, but this week, vice president of enforcement for the NCAA, John Duncan said at the NCAA's annual convention that the NCAA is going to be able to use circumstantial evidence, like a tip or a news story, instead of on-record sourcing, in order to presume that a school violated the NCAA's rules. And the rules, again, are the the interim policy that was put up right after the Alston case. And to clarify, I, I see a lot of people, probably not people that listen to this podcast, but people that say, what's there to police? The Supreme Court ruled 9 nothing that they can't do that. That's probably not true. The Supreme Court definitely said, hey, tread lightly when it comes to antitrust. But the Alston case is about education-related benefits, not name, image, and likeness. The NCAA punted on name, image, and likeness because they wanted a ruling in place ahead of the season. But for those that say that there's no room to police this rule at all, I, I don't necessarily believe that that's true. Anyway, the standard is now lower in that it's now up to the schools to prove that they haven't violated the rules as opposed to the uh, the other way around. So basically you have a, a guilty until proven innocent standard here. And and the quote that Duncan gave is that quote if it if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. What do you make of all of this, Evan? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It it's, you know, I, I think most people are happy to see NIL be granted to student athletes. I think it's a bit frustrating probably for institutions, for NIL collectives to constantly have the policies be updated and and changed. I know they're interim policies, but they are being changed quite frequently. Prior to this, there was the October one. So that's, you know, what, three, four month difference between policies. And this is tough because it shifts the burden of proof to the institution. So now it's not innocent until proven guilty. It's actually quite the opposite. I think that's probably not the best way to go. The policy seems very strict. I know that staff can't communicate with a prospect until they've committed and enrolled in the institution. They can't contact family members, which, you know, I'm not going to speak for any institutions, but I can almost guarantee you that that's happening just about everywhere that allows NIL. So, yeah, I I don't know. NCAA obviously has their own reasons. I understand they don't want to incentivize a pay-to-win type structure for NIL where the biggest schools are offering the most money to get the best recruits. But this is a tough policy, I think. I think institutions are going to have a lot more paperwork and and management to deal with this. Yeah, I, I think that this puts more pressure on compliance staffs who are really already overburdened with a lot of the constant rule changes I think that the NCAA sees a problem here that they are really struggling to get people to go on the record because they don't want to disrupt the system. You don't want to tip over the apple cart because it might affect your next bite. Instead, they're putting the onus on the schools. I I think that this is going to result in lawsuits. I, I don't think that there's any way that they are going to be able to police this effectively. Changing the rules, which the schools have relied upon to this point, and now we're we're really at the point where the schools are almost directly negotiating these deals for them. They might say that they're not, but in a lot of instances, it appears like coaching staffs are aware 
administrators are aware that everyone is kind of on the same page as a collective. That's how a lot of these recruiting deals have gotten done, especially in football. And so I, I think that this is going to lead to a lot of those schools, particularly schools that have invested heavily in NIL, digging their heels in and really fighting the NCAA tooth and nail because the NCAA has proven to be fairly feckless when it comes to being able to enforce its own rules. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the biggest concern right now. I don't know if this is just a bit of posturing on the NCAA part, but they are having you know trouble enforcing the rules, and I think they might have trouble enforcing these rules as well. I know that a lot of the people that have spoke on this said that they expect there to be antitrust lawsuits. I know NIL, it's new. I know NCAA is a huge, huge entity, but they have to do a better job on the administrative side of issuing a rule, enforcing it, and then keeping that rule to be stationary because the constant change, while I understand they're trying to adapt and make sure that you know these rules are fair and that they're not creating a giant market issue, like I said, where the big schools are, are the only people getting recruits because they have the money to do it, there needs to be some sort of consistency without this because it's not only frustrating to the big schools, but it's frustrating to every school that's going to be able to have an NIL collective agency and and to be able to offer those deals to student athletes. So, yeah, I'm interested to see the, the backlash and the fallout from this. I know initial reactions are not great. I'm personally someone trying to start up NIL. And, you know, I'm happy I get this guidance before I get to propose it. But if I had already gotten a clinic going and this had come out, I mean, that's a a huge headache to try to fix all that. Yeah, well, thankfully, with our clinic at the University of Minnesota, we have been on the same page as the athletic department and, and been in constant contact with them. They were involved when we were setting up the, the rules. The Office of the General Counsel was involved. So I, I think that our people... Uh, on the university side kind of saw where this might be going. And that's why our clinic is open to all students at any institution, not just University of Minnesota, not just go for student athletes. And I think that that's going to have to be the model. I don't see a, a way that that you can get around that because even that October guidance that you mentioned, it clearly states that you can't give legal services to a student athlete that you wouldn't otherwise offer to the general population. And so our legal services are offered through my firm, Fredrickson and Byron, and they are based on the pro bono qualifications that the firm has established. And they're open to anybody that can take advantage of their right to celebrity and take advantage of these endorsement deals. So I urge any other group that is trying to go about creating one of these uh, clinics or, or just to provide these services to be smart about it and follow those rules and make sure that you are open to any student because that's just the way that you have to be with the NCAA's current guidance subject subject to change. Anything else uh, on this, Evan? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you you covered a lot on that uh, clinic advice stuff. And also, I think my last piece of advice is is start communicating with athletic staff because a big part of the new policy is that you know, they can't communicate with family and that's kind of commonplace. And just make sure you have open lines of communication between yourself and, and maybe start bookkeeping a lot, start documenting when you're meeting with these guys, make sure that you're not doing it before they're enrolled, make sure you're not trying to coerce them to stay. And, you know, if you've got NIL stuff, I really urge you to read 
the new policy, you know, you don't want to lose your clinic or, or lose any of that kind of stuff because you violated a policy that you didn't know, even though I know it may be a little taxing to constantly check the updates. It is important. And good segue from NIL, Oren Hogan, aka Nebraska firm and college sports leader. They are the sponsor of this episode. If you guys need any NIL work, please feel free to reach out to them. I promise you they are up and coming on all of these new policies. They will handle your stuff in the best way possible. Yeah, good friends of the podcast, good friends of Dan Luss, and we appreciate Oren Horgan for uh, supporting the podcast, and we love reading their ads. Just to button that up on NIL, if you are a student athlete and you're listening to this, first of all, awesome. But second of all, I I think that this is also kind of a message that you've got to stay smart and and make sure that you are having somebody that you trust and preferably somebody with legal knowledge, legal experience, read over these contracts. You don't want to be agreeing to something that is going to violate NCAA rules. And also you should be in touch with your compliance officer and make sure that they know what you're agreeing to, because that's important for your eligibility, for the school to not face sanctions, and and just for everybody to be able to, to keep taking advantage of these opportunities going forward. Speaking of college student not being very smart, I'm not sure if you saw the news this week about Stetson Bennett, the two-time national championship winning quarterback, 25-year-old Bennett, who walked on at Georgia and had the storybook career where he won two national championships for a program that had not won, won since 1980, was arrested after police were dispatched to Old East Dallas in Texas after receiving a report about somebody loudly banging on doors. When the officers arrived around 6 a.m. local time, they found the 25-year-old Bennett, determined that he was intoxicated, and arrested him. Now, I know that I have done some stupid things in my past, but I also wasn't necessarily right about to do one of the most important job interviews of my life. So, Evan, what do you think the NFL repercussions will be when it comes to Mr. Bennett? Yeah. So I think this is a funny scenario. I think when I saw the story, first thing popped in my mind, Baker Mayfield. I think that this is probably somewhat similar. And I think it's different in the sense that Baker Mayfield was a a very highly regarded talent coming out of college. He was pretty consensus top three pick, ended up going number one to the Browns. Stetson Bennett, on the other hand, not as highly regarded, lots of success in college, but 25 years old. So already not you know, a youthful guy. He's pretty seasoned. Now you can look at that as a good thing. You can look at it as, you know, he has enough room to grow in the NFL. So, you know, whatever the mocks are projecting him, it's probably not in the first round. I don't know if this really affects it. I don't know if an NFL team that's sold on Stetson Bennett sees this and goes, ah, I can't do it because he, he got caught for public intoxication. I don't know if the NFL has any repercussions on it. He's not even part of it yet. I think it's stupid. I've again, I'm with you. I've done dumb things in college for sure, but I also wasn't a highly touted college football prospect. So I think I had a little more leeway to do some stuff that maybe wasn't going to be recorded on camera. Never got arrested, just to put that on the record. So not sharing that with Stetson Bennett. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, he's a college kid. He's older than me, but I guess he's a college kid. And public intoxication, it's not crazy. It's, it's it's a bad mistake. I don't think it'll kill him too much in terms of draft capital, but 
definitely a blemish on the record for someone who's had a nice storybook, like you said. Yeah. As dumb as it is, I think Bennett has a few things working against him. The age one, the lack of kind of respect for his talent. Uh, He was fine, played with a lot of good players, and he made the plays that he needed to make. I was more surprised that he decided to skip the senior bowl. In Mobile, he could have met with all 32 teams. It would have had an opportunity to get more reps to show what he could do, that he does have the talent to at least be a backup. Decided not to do that and instead was arrested during the week that it would have been. If I'm somebody that is giving somebody a job that everyone wants, right? There's like how many hundreds of quarterbacks at the collegiate level and they all want this job. I'm thinking that maybe I want to give it to somebody that has maybe a little bit more want to respect for it. But yeah, I'm sure Stetson Bennett will be fine. Everyone expected him to be selling insurance after he won those national championships or like owning a car dealership anyway. So the fact is that he won and he won again. He had a, a great career. And so even if he doesn't have plans to go on to the next level, it's good for him. And I'm sure that he'll be fine. This is not like the worst thing that somebody could ever do. Yeah, there, this is not a career ender. There have been uh, plenty of college prospects and plenty of NFL players that have done far worse and are still uh, thriving in their career. I'm not going to put out names, but I'm pretty sure you guys can put some context around that and figure it out. So Stetson Bennett's going to be drafted where he's going to be drafted, if at all, I would guess yes. But, you know, I don't, I don't think public intoxication is knocking him down more than a couple picks, if anything. One last piece of really big news that was announced this past week was that Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns Bally Sports, a lot of these regional sports networks that they purchased from Disney, what was the Fox Sports, the regional sports networks, they purchased them, they rebranded them as Bally Sports. They made that purchase in 2019 for $10.6 billion dollars. Now, if you know about baseball in particular, but really all of the sports, baseball revenues are highly dependent on these local TV contracts. Those are uh, a major source of revenue for a lot of teams. So if you think about the Padres are amongst the Valley sports teams, the Angels, the Minnesota Twins here in the Twin Cities, the Atlanta Braves. All of those teams are beneficiaries of uh, these deals with regional sports networks. So Sinclair announced that they are filing for bankruptcy. And part of the reason is that during COVID, there was no live sports to broadcast. And so a lot of streaming services dropped regional sports networks from their, their programming. What do you think we will see as the effect on on teams? Do you think that this is going to be a a big problem for Major League Baseball teams in particular and and other teams that depend on this revenue? Well, I I did see something that the Pelicans, the NBA team, New Orleans Pelicans are part of Valley Sports. I know that their pivot plan is to go to NBC, see if they can get a deal there. So I'd imagine that most of the teams with Valley Sports will be able to find some partner to take their games you know, obviously sports is a huge part of media. I'm, I'm sure the ratings are through the roof, especially with the certain teams that you mentioned, like the Braves, the Angels with Otani and Trout are becoming must-watch TV. So I don't think they'll have too hard of a time finding a new partner. But 
That being said, it's not as easy as just, oh, we're done with Bally. Let's go, you know, find NBC or Fox and, and partner with them. There might be a bit of competitiveness between the teams. There might be marketing. This team's better. They got better metrics, better SEO. So yeah, it should be interesting to see what the fallout is. I, this is the first time I can remember at least a major sports partner in the media kind of falling out on their teams. It's like having a little bunch of free agents out there. So I'm sure media companies are chomping at the bit to go with them. It's an interesting situation. And I, I think that some teams that maybe don't have the the viewership necessarily on a on a game-to-game basis, it might be a little bit more difficult for those teams to find a partner that is willing to compensate them as well as Sinclair was to this point. Right. And in those cases, given that they're they're so dependent on that revenue, it's not necessarily that revenue sharing is the same where it's more centralized in some of the other leagues. Baseball teams, it is a little bit more capitalistic. So, you know, if the Mets media rights went on sale tomorrow uh, and they were no longer locked into their contract with SNY, they might get a ton of money because just to be in the New York market, yeah, the Mets, yeah, the advertising would be massive, right? But if you're in a smaller market by size, uh, I think that that might not necessarily be the case. So, in a scenario where we're already seeing so many of these teams, not spend on free agents, not spend to keep their own players. That kind of worries me what it's going to look like in three to five years if the regional sports networks go belly up and there's not a good replacement for it. But I think this is something that if the teams are smart, they've been preparing for because I think cord cutting really showed that this was going to be uh, happening eventually. Yeah, You'd expect some level of, of preparation. But yeah, I agree with you. The disparity in market in baseball is becoming, I think, more apparent as the years go on. I think, you know, test cases like the Pirates, the Rockies, you know, the owner of the, or the president of the Rockies came out and said, I think we'll be 500. Uh, that's crazy. I mean, to aim for 500, I get not everyone can be the Yankees, the Mets and, and spend a ton of money and build a team. But it is important to put yourself out there to sign the big free agents. And then it's sort of an investment because you sign, you spend money and then you become more marketable. So the Angels is a great example because they're not a very good baseball team, but they've got the two biggest stars in baseball. So they're automatically marketable. And if they had media rights drops, they'd everyone will be all over them. I mean, any person who gets to broadcast Shohei Otani for 82 games is going to be all over that. So Yeah, I think this is probably going to highlight an important issue. It may bring up the issue of blackouts in certain areas, which I think MLB is trying to address as well. It's a shame that Bally has, uh, you know, filed for bankruptcy, but might bring to light some more important issues that can change for the better going forward. I'm so glad that you brought that up. uh, Dick Momfort's comments this week. Not only did he say, yeah, I think we could be 500. He also uh, threw some shade at the Padres for spending money. And I thought that that was just a really ludicrous approach. You know, you're you're shaming a team that is willing to spend money to the delight of their fans, to the delight of the neutral baseball fans that would love to see more competition. Last year, we got to see two teams in the Padres and the Phillies who have spent gratuitously in free agency over the last couple of years, make it to play for the NL pennant and for a neutral baseball fan, not one who hates the city of Philadelphia like myself. That was amazing. And and anyone who cares about the health of baseball generally 
certainly enjoyed that. So shame on Momfort. That is embarrassing the way that they have operated that franchise for a long time. They had that brief moment in the sun in 2007. And since then on Conduct Detrimental, we like to preview these issues and give our listeners a a chance to know what's coming down the pike. And I'm sure that if, as this case develops, we can get somebody who knows a little bit more about bankruptcy than a lost on a baby lawyer. So with that, uh, I think we can put this portion of the episode in the books and we'll hear a, a great interview between you and, and Mike Scott. Yeah. Speaking of MLB, perfect transition. Mike Scott, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, Associate General Counsel at the Washington Nationals. Really great guy. He's got an awesome story about his transition from law school into a sports agency, into a labor and employment law firm, and then finally at the Nationals. Definitely tune in if you're a law student or you're freshly out of law school and you want to get into uh, sports law, 100%. Got to listen to it. He gives some great advice. And Little bonus, he gives out his contact info at the end of the episode to do some networking. My name is Evan Mattel. You guys have probably heard me on the podcast before. I am the editor-in-chief for Conduct Detrimental. Today is the first of hopefully many episodes where I'm going to start interviewing counsel for different uh, professional sports teams and leagues. Today we have our first guest, Mike Scott. Mike is associate counsel for the Washington Nationals. So, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit how you started in uh, law school? Sure. So my my path to kind of getting to my role was definitely a little bit different than I think most people's was. I actually, and this isn't on my LinkedIn or my resume, but I actually started off my first year of law school at Michigan State. Was there for pretty much all first semester and second semester. It was just about winter break of my 1L year. Started reaching out to different agencies, sports agencies in different venues in the New York City area, ended up connecting with a sports agency called Sports Stars. You know, they kind of told me, hey, if you know, you could figure out a way to get to New York for law school, you know, you'll have a chance of getting an internship with us. So I said, you know, great. Ended up transferring law schools for my second year, went to Cardoza Law based in New York, um, and ended up interning at Sports Stars for all three years of law school, and then ended up working for them just about six months afterwards. But really, like if you're, you know, kind of just focusing on my time in law school, I was really with Sports Stars the entire time. Did everything from sort of athlete marketing and sponsorship negotiation, helped a lot with sponsorship activation, doing different social media posts and sort of in market events. And then on the legal side of things, really with the, you know, with the assistance of other attorneys there drafting and negotiating all these different types of agreements. But then also, I think, unlike sort of major team, taking the extra step and actually helping to activate on all those different sponsorships as well. And that was pretty much my focus, really, for all three years of law school. You did say something that I think is really important I want to emphasize. You said that you found this connection from sports stars through just reaching out. I'm only a 2L. I don't have a ton of experience. But when I have people that reach out either through Conduct Detrimental or through the Sports Law Society and they ask, you know, how do I start getting into sports law? What is the first step to take? My first advice through the minimum experience that I have is always start finding people on LinkedIn on cold emails and just start reaching out because you never know what's going to come. I mean, me and you pretty much met through just I sent you a LinkedIn message. And now we're here sitting and talking. So what do you think about that advice? You think that's probably the best thing you could tell a law student trying to get into that field? Yeah, cold emails are always good. I think, you know, especially like when you're in the early information stage of things, when you're just trying to find out like what it actually means to be a general counsel of a team or like what it actually means to be a sports agent. Cold emails are great. 
I think as you get older, sort of advanced throughout law school and advanced throughout your legal career, once you start looking for full-time roles, I think the cold email is probably not going to be as helpful anymore. Because, I mean, the truth is a lot of that information you can just look up on someone's LinkedIn. You know, you could kind of like roughly see the path of how they got to their job. As you get older, and like we can get into this too, and I think it's part of the reason I got my job at the Nationals, you know, you really kind of have to look for ways to stand out. So a lot of like, you know, I think I know what you're doing, writing about sport, uh, putting work product out there, showing that like, if, for example, you want to work in baseball, that even if you're not in the field, you're very knowledgeable about sort of current sports law issues in the field. I think that's what will ultimately make the difference down the road. But when you're in like the early stages of things, and certainly when you're like a 1L, 2L, cold emails and sort of targeting people on LinkedIn, I think is a really great way to start making connections. Yeah. And uh, speaking of our illustrious host, Dan, um, told me that you guys kind of met that way and he kind of helped you out through this process as well. So give us a little background yeah. about you and Dan's history. Dan is, Dan's awesome. First of all, he's definitely one of my early mentors sort of in the sports law space. We probably connected, it was definitely before the pandemic. So I want to say like somewhere around 2019, Dan had written an article way before Conduct Detrimental or anything like that. And it was like picked up by like a sports law blog. I want to say it was something about Kevin Durant, but I'm sure Dan can definitely correct me if I'm wrong about that. So, you know, we, we kind of had a conversation like way back when Dan was telling me about his interest in sort of working in the sports law space. And like, he might've been dabbling like here and there and doing some work back then. But, you know, he kind of told me that he started writing about the industry and, it, you know, I kind of got really excited about that potential idea. So then I started writing about the industry. And then fast forward, you know, ultimately, I ended up getting a job in sports. But Dan was definitely one of the early inspirations. If he if there are any like law students out there, and like Dan tells you to write, like, make sure you start writing about sports, it'll, it'll definitely make a difference for you down the road, even if it's not right away. Yeah, so you guys heard it here. This is a unaffiliated conduct sponsorship <laughs> here. But yeah, I think that you you hit it on the head. I think Dan, for me personally, has been a, a really good mentor and a guide trying to navigate, you know, the steps of how to get into sports law and more than just, you know, networking, but being able to have practical experience writing. And, you know, I'm in a unique position as an editor where I get to see every article that's being submitted. I get to edit and post, which means that I'm seeing every sports law article that we're going through. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Dan. I think we're both uh, very appreciative of that. Agreed. Yeah. So we went through your time with the sports stars. I do want to talk a little bit about that time after sports stars with time in labor and employment from being on yeah. a journal for labor and employment at Hofstra. I've kind of learned that sports law and labor and employment law are so closely related. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So while I was at sports stars, I was mostly working in, in football. Actually, I was only working in football. All, all of our clients were in the NFL, but I always sort of had this like nagging thought at the back of my head that you know, hey, you're, my goal is always to work in baseball in some capacity. It was right before the CBA was about to expire, I guess, maybe like two years before. I thought that if I could sort of gain this very substantive labor and employment background, I'd put myself in a really good position to either get a job with the league and like the labor relations department, or potentially with the union. I actually wasn't even like considering clubs at the time, didn't even think it would be a possibility. I uh, was really either focused on the player side of things with an agency or with the union or working in a league office in some capacity. So sort of at that time, I kind of pivoted, ended up, you know, like you said, going to a law firm that specializes in labor and employment law. Actually, all of my clients were labor unions. So I did mostly litigation work and then some transactional work as well. But like I said, mostly on the litigation side, labor and employment obviously intersects with sports in a number of different ways. 
in baseball, there's a very long history of the two fields sort of interacting. And just sort of, I think, like looking into the future, kind of knowing that the CBA was about to expire and just sort of trying to pick off different areas of the industry where I thought there would be a need. That's kind of when I decided to pivot and, and everything just ended up working out really well. And I found a, you know, a firm that literally specialized in labor and employment. And not only that, but all their clients were labor unions too, which was, you know, kind of like worked out even better for me in the long term. Yeah. And I think at least me personally, and I'm sure a lot of my, my colleagues at law school, we think that, you know, I want to go into sports law, which means I have to go find a sports law internship or a job, you know, right away. Yeah. And I had a professor who said, you know, sports law is not a legal field. Sports law is like a topic that incorporates labor and employment, criminal law, real estate, all that kind of stuff. So find yourself a, a market that you enjoy. And then, like you said, that makes you more marketable when you go to find a, a sports law job. Yeah, for sure. I'm very much a believer in like finding a substantive area of law that you're really interested in. I think that interest can change over time. Like for me, it definitely has, right? I started off in labor and employment. But sort of being more on the transactional side now, really my focus and my interests actually have kind of shifted more towards that side. But I think, like you said, sports law is not a thing, right? It's nothing. It's just a bunch of different areas of law that are combined to interact with sports in, in some way. So I think, you know, especially when you're younger, like having the opportunity to sort of specialize in a field and, you know, and become an expert in a certain area of law, I think will do you a lot of good down the road. Okay, great. And you know what? Good segue. You mentioned that you kind of shifted from labor to transactional now with the nationals. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly being associate counsel means with the sports team? I think the uh, the name is attractive to a lot of us, but I don't know if everyone really understands what responsibilities are delegated to. Sure. So I think the best way to put it is that my job is sort of all over the place. I wake up in the morning with like a very clear plan in my head of what I want to accomplish that day. And I get to the office and by 9am, I'm doing 50 different things that are all coming out of nowhere. And I never thought that like the, anything that I woke up in the morning with that sort of list, that's all kind of out the window by the time I get to the office most of the time. So the job is, is definitely a little bit all, all over the place. And like to set the context, like we're a service department, right? Our legal department provides services to the rest of the organization, similar to like a finance department or an IT department, right? We're not necessarily on the front lines generating revenue for the organization, but we're sort of doing everything on the back end to like help support all those people that either are generating revenue, so on the business side, or helping out the people that are actually putting players on the field on the baseball side of things. So my job really sort of runs that spectrum. I'm handling a lot of different contracts on the transactional side. So things like software license agreements, SaaS agreements, a lot of different agreements related to our venue. So things like construction, engineers, architects, plumbers, electricians, even like our cleaning service, different things like that also sort of come through my desk on the baseball operations side of things. I, you know, there are like a lot of different transactional contracts, probably not what people think. More so like baseball technology, I guess, is the best way to put it. Different uh, tools and like different software that like our trainers use or that our coaches use that are then applied to players that spit out some sort of data. All those sort of technologies are backed by contracts that like come through our legal department. But then we also sort of help on the player side as well, really just providing different you know pieces of advice here and there, answering one-off questions. There's an immigration issue, for example, like that's something that we would take and like sort of talk internally and figure out. So there really is like a pretty broad spectrum that only really covers like probably a third of what I do. The other side of things is the litigation side as well. Obviously, as a major league baseball team, we're sued every once in a while. So there are a number of different 
litigation matters that we'll also handle and sort of manage with outside counsel. And then finally, I guess like really the third bucket is sort of internal compliance slash HR matters. So setting policies, running internal investigations, if an employee breaks a policy, so different things like that. So like working in-house is an extremely, extremely broad role. I guess that's really the best way to put it. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a great, like, you know, I know there's a ton that you do. So I think that's a pretty good summary. I think that paints the picture for people who might not know. You mentioned that ability to to be versatile and kind of adapt and get to the office. Do you think that's the most challenging part of being counsel for a, a professional sports team? I think it's probably the most interesting part. You know, you really like have to learn to think on the fly and you'll see like, as you get further into the job, a lot of situations repeat themselves I'm very thankful that I have two great bosses that are like very supportive of me. And they're always like very much big believers in an open door policy. I can go into either of their offices at any time of the day, you know, to sort of ask any question that might be relevant. And they'll sort of help push me in the right direction. But they also kind of give me the freedom to like figure these things out on my own, which I think is a really great learning experience. So I don't know, most challenging. Yeah, it can be at some times, especially if you're dealing with sensitive matters. But it definitely is what keeps the job interesting as well. Yeah. And then just a couple more things. I do want to walk back a little bit. That time between labor and employment law and the nationals, I know that you actually took an externship with the nationals and were also working part-time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I I think that sports law is such a niche field that sometimes you do have to make a move like that where you're not 100% in your spot where you want to be, but that the potential is there. Can you talk a little bit about that time in your life? Sure. So while I was at the firm, really started to network and like really drill in on baseball, especially like reaching out to people on both the management side of things and the player side of things as well. I kind of with Dan's inspiration, actually, like I kind of figured out like, hey, just sending my resume around to people is is just is not going to do it for me, right? Like because me and hundreds of other people are doing the exact same thing. So kind of started off writing a little bit at Dan's suggestion started talking to more and more people that sort of evolved. I was never able to participate in the salary arbitration case study, the Tulane competition while I was in law school, just because I was basically, you know, working almost full time at an agency while I was also a student. So I decided to put together salary arb case studies just on my free time. So I would just put together decks, find players that I, you know, I thought I could make a good argument for. My very early versions of those decks are terrible. You know, it was only through like talking to people in the industry that I really understood like what the salary arbitration process was and what actually goes into a deck. And I was able to refine those presentations a little bit and like get them to a point where they're at least presentable by no means perfect. I know we're near like what our baseball operations staff does today, but they were at least the talking point. And I sort of used that as an entry point to talk to other club counsel or talk to different lawyers at different agencies. From that, I was able to then take all of that plus a few articles that I wrote that ended up getting picked up by you know mainstream blogs and using that as part of my application process. So when the Nationals uh, were hiring, they actually posted an internship. It was, uh, I think, August of 2020. You know, I ended up obviously applying for the role. I got referred by another club council that I had been introduced to. And, you know, I remember like saying in the interview that, hey, like I've done all this stuff in my free time. Like I would love to share it with you guys. And this, I said this to my, who's now the person who's now my current boss. After that interview concluded, I ended up sending all that information to them. Obviously, it impressed them enough where I guess they gave me a chance. So I actually went part-time, or I'm sorry, full-time at a law firm to part-time with the Nationals as an intern. 
And I know we were discussing this a little bit earlier, but while I was also part-time at the Nats, I ended up picking up three other part-time jobs at the same time just to make some extra money. So I was working for the Nats. I was doing part-time work for a personal injury firm. I was doing part-time work for sort of a corporate business law firm. And then I was also doing freelance work at the same time. So I was working all these different jobs just to try and make it work. And then thankfully, like probably about six months after I got the internship, I ended up turning it into a full-time role. But certainly there was a lot of sacrifice and it was definitely not the easiest path to get to this point. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I mean, I think that's a great story, especially for everyone listening who kind of feels like, you know, maybe I don't know how to how to do like sports ball right away. I don't know, you know, how to break into this field. I think that's great. And I mean, doing that kind of stuff, you know, researching arbitration and and making cases on your own. I think that's the kind of stuff that makes you stand out as a candidate, um, at least in the interviews that I've had with Madison Square Garden, with uh, the sports agency I work at now. Conduct is the first thing they bring up. They look at my resume and I have other legal experience, but they go, what's this this blog you have? I feel like there's certain unique stuff outside of just internships that, you know, you have to stand out from the crowd. And I think, you know, obviously probably a little biased as the editor, but I think conduct is one way to really kind of make yourself stand out to sports law. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. And I, I refer a lot of law students to Dan. He probably hates me because all the students that talk to me, I then send to him. So they're all in his inbox. But it's funny because now being on the other side of things and I was just involved Within the last couple of months, we just, you know, the Nationals, we just hired our uh, school year legal intern and I was involved in the hiring process for that. So, so, you know, sort of being on the other side of things, like I now realize that like I kind of look for the same things like when we're hiring too. having really good sports experience and having really good sort of legal or, you know, law firm experience is, is awesome. But sports is it's tough. It's really competitive. So like really like what you can do to set yourself apart from everyone else, I think is really what makes the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I think kind of perfectly segues into our our last little segment here. Can you just end with a key piece of advice for an aspiring sports sports lawyer, either in law school or freshly graduated that just wants to take the first step? What's your best piece of advice, do you think? Sure. So for taking the first step, I think do your research. That's like really, really important. And not just like doing your research on people's career paths or how they got to their current jobs. But like also know their organization, like a lot of the, these, you know, these, like a lot of the matters I work on, you can like Google and find them. It might take you a little bit, but like you can get there. So for example, if you're, you know, talking to a club that's moving into a new venue, ask the lawyer questions about like, what, what, like, what does that mean? Right? Like what, what legal work, like, are they doing to like help transition their club from the old venue to the new venue? What are the types of law, you know, that sort of interact with, with that move? I think like doing your research from from the onset is really going to make a big difference, you know, because like people like you know myself and I know my bosses, like we all talk to a lot of different law students and young lawyers. And the truth is a lot of them ask the same questions. But if someone like were to Google the nationals and like find a current matter that might interact with the legal department and like ask me about it, I think when we go to, you know, hire an intern or hire a junior level attorney and like we see your name and like our you know recruiting software, like that's that's what's going to stand out for us and like that's almost in my mind at least like an automatic bump to the next level if you can sort of demonstrate that knowledge and that maybe some people aren't great i hope i'm not one of those guys uh, asking (laughs) (laughs) no you're good don't worry i think that's good we want to keep this about a half hour to keep it nice and digestible for everyone do you have anything else you want to say any other uh, advice you want to give or just to sign off yeah i think that's it for me my inbox is open for any law students out there, like certainly feel free to reach out. I think I 
I've taken every single call since I've gotten into this job. Plenty of people did it for me when I was looking for roles. So I'm, I'm always happy to pay it forward. And I can, Evan, you have my email. So like, certainly you could feel free to put it out and like whatever post this goes out on. And I think, I think that's it for me. All right. And I think, you know, I can speak for everyone who will take you up on that offer that we're very appreciative. I know I am very appreciative that, you know, you took time out of your night to come speak with me and our audience and kind of give us some insight on who you are and what you do for your team. So uh, thank yeah, you. Of course. Happy, happy to do it. All right, guys, that is my first interview. I will get back to you hopefully with another one. Uh, that is Michael Scott, not Dunder Mifflin, Washington Nationals, Michael Scott. We call him Mike here. All right, guys, thanks a lot for listening. That was the interview with Mike Scott. I just want to say thank you again for him taking his time out of his day to sit down and speak with me and the wonderful listeners of our audience at Conduct Detrimental. Uh, I believe that is the end of the episode. Taryn, you want to give us a send off? Yeah, that was uh, that was awesome. It's a great job that you did getting into contact with Mike and recording an awesome interview. I think that that's really valuable for the people that listen to this podcast to uh, get a sense of of what goes into getting into one of those roles. I think we're all kind of amazed at anybody who can go to work in a ballpark. So that that was awesome. Kudos to you, Evan. Just before we go, we want to mention that we created a featured contributors graphic just to recognize all of the great students and lawyers that have contributed to our coverage of sports law this year, this past year. I know for me, Conduct Detrimental, and I I shared a little bit about this, and Dan Lust in particular, have really changed my life, given me a a platform uh, on which I can discuss sports and law. and, uh, And I know that I've had so many other opportunities as a result of this experience And Evan, I'm sure that it's been the same way for you so far, and it's only going to get better as you finish law school and and go on into your career. And I want to, again, offer to anybody that is interested in joining our team, in writing, whatever you want to do, we are really interested in empowering, whether you're a lawyer, a law student, whether you're not a lawyer, if you just have interest in sports and sports law, we are really interested in giving you a platform from which to to speak. And we're just going to continue to grow this enterprise and really happy to uh, to have been able to record the episode with you today, Evan. You can find awesome. us uh, at Con Detrimental on Twitter. I'm at TK Sharma Law on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Evan underscore Mattel 21, M-A-T-T-E-L, like the toy company. No Thanks. affiliation. <laughs> Thanks again to Dan and Dan and our entire team. And this is uh, Taryn and Evan signing off. Thanks for listening, guys.